Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From HowStuffWorks.com, this is the Stuff of Life. I'm Julie Douglas, host of The Stuff of Life, a podcast that teases apart the tales we tell because when we crack open a story and look inside, we see the seeds of what make our world so maddening, so strange, and so achingly beautiful, not to mention ridiculous. The Stuff of Life is a podcast about how we're all just getting by, learning, and surviving through the stories we share. In this episode, we take on the power of fear, and we talk to a SWAT team member and a former firefighter about how we react when the survival chips are down. Then we eavesdrop on the How Stuff Works Collective and the types of emergencies they imagine but rarely voice. Finally, a professor of sociology who's trying to get to the bottom of what Americans are really scared of. He schools us on what we're obsessing about and why. Fear has this double power over us. It has the power to, to you know, of course frighten us to make us cower to change our behavior but also the power to make us ask all these questions about ourselves and like question who we are most of us seldom actively ponder the things that could go wrong instead our subconscious is the jar of our fears i mean think about it we wouldn't be able to function if every single worry came to the forefront of our conscious minds we'd be completely stunned So, we jar up the worst-case scenarios, we put them on a shelf, and there they remain until a nightmare unleashes them, or we, say, board a plane and we take that jar off the shelf to examine it. And we've been doing this since we were children, absorbing messages from fairy tales like beware the wolf disguised as a family member, or do not enter that charming cottage that smells like gingerbread. These are survival guides the very first fears to go up on the shelf. The idea in this episode is to try to square up the real and imagined fears that made it into adulthood. 
how we think about them, and how we deal with them. So first we turn to two experts who have their boots on the ground preparing for the real deal. Picture the Jason movies or the Freddy Krueger and the girl's getting chased. She's got a hundred yards on the guy. All she has to do is unlock her car with the key and she can't do it. And you're in the movie theater screaming at her, unlock, unlock the door, unlock the door. We think that's just movie. It's actually what happens to people. That's Brock Ryan, a former firefighter who, along with Paul Merritt, a member of the Atlanta Police Department SWAT team, formed a company called Life Safety Solutions. They used their own blueprint for survival, all those high-wire moments they've encountered, to teach others how to meet their own life-or-death moments. That moment came to me as a firefighter. Um, I was doing evacuation training for the fire department for high-rise buildings, was trying to introduce them into how serious the matter can be. And at that point, there was a lot of people not taking that serious. The planes hit the building in New York City, and everything changed. Everything changed in the sense that the veil had fallen. We had to now think harder and smarter about the places we assumed were safe. And while we all know that surviving an emergency can sometimes come down to dumb luck, like say you're close to an exit door, sometimes the ability to persevere comes down to self-possessed, split-second decisions. Something Paul Merritt knows firsthand. If someone is not prepared for it and they don't know what their options are, when they're hit with that surprise emergency threat and they get big, that big dump of adrenaline in their system, they're going to have a hard way thinking their way through the issue. They're not going to take action. They're going to search in their, in their brain for the, the proper response. And if there's nothing there, that's when we see people take highly logical actions. Paul said two things that I think we can all relate to. That adrenaline rush that washes over us, changing our body temperatures, stiffening our muscles, dilating our pupils. A feeling like the inside of our stomach is being hollowed out. Flight or fight, as it's known. The other thing we do is, well, we hide in plain sight. Just like you see young kids do when they first try out a game of hide-and-seek. There they are, out in the open, hands pressed to their eyes. It's a kind of magical thinking. If I can't see you, you can't see me. And then the incantation, please, please don't see me. If you look at the Columbine shooting, they had students who were hiding under tables in plain sight in the library. It was not a good place to be, but because they were hit with this unexpected stressor, they couldn't logically think their way through it. And in hindsight, we look at it and we're like, what were they thinking? How mm-hmm. could they do something like this? That, that's the issue. We can't, our, we can't logically solve a problem when we're scared to death. One of the things Brock and Paul talk about is a kind of mental Rolodex that your brain flips through during an emergency. They point to the cliche of your life flashing before your eyes. They say it's not that your mind is giving you a last glimpse of your life. It's your brain looking for an answer to the problem in front of you, perhaps even looking inside of those jars of fears. Meanwhile, your body is undergoing a massive chemical change that can result in cognitive distortion and the loss of fine motor skills. A lot of things, both cognitively and perceptual distortions uh, that happen to people. Not everyone gets all of them, things like tunnel vision, things like auditory exclusion. 
time slowing down, time speeding up, trouble with uh, depth perception, all these things. Say if someone's in a building and they might get tunnel vision on the exit. Why? They're totally focused on the exit and their peripheral vision is going to basically go down to nothing. We see that all the time with people who are from, from a law enforcement aspect when you talk to someone that's been robbed. And they, you say, what's the description of the guy? I can't tell you what he looked like. I can't tell this. I can't tell that. But his gun was huge. It was a massive gun. The gun was gigantic. Why? Because all their focus is on is on that threat. It's that gun. All of a sudden, it might be a little revolver, but the gun looked like a howitzer because they were totally focused on it. Now, remember what Brock said about Freddy Krueger? He's chasing the girl, getting closer and closer, and she's futzing with the keys. She can't unlock the car door. That turns out to be a pretty good example of the loss of fine motor skills. We think that's just movie. It's actually what happens to people. She cannot unlock the door. She's too scared. She can't control the key. It will not go in the hole. Okay, so your heart's racing. You have only your gross motor skills at your immediate command. What do you do? Well, you breathe. From the beginning, there's one thing that everybody can do, and we just call it tactical breathing. We call it cycle breathing. It's a four-count breathing exercise where I would breathe four in through my nose, hold it for four, four slowly release through the mouth, hold it for four. And when you do these breathing exercises, it will help bring that hormonally increased heart rate down a little bit, which will improve your cognitive ability. Mm -hmm. It'll reduce those perceptual distortions, help you perform at a little bit higher level. They also train people to build up a blueprint for themselves, learn their environments and their options. It's about specifics, not generalities. They may even have blocks of wood that they hit together to mimic the sharp report of a firearm so that if you ever do encounter the real thing, the real sound, you won't be quite as thrown by it. It was funny, we were doing a training exercise in one building and we train it, we tell everyone, hey, wherever I am hitting these blocks of wood together, I'm the bad guy. So, and they knew what their options are. And we tell everyone there is no right and wrong option. You do what's best for you in relation to the threat. But bear in mind, I am the bad guy. So, and this is why, it, kind of telling the story, it's why it's so important to have more than one option. More than one, if I get this, if A happens, I'm always going to do B. Because I'm standing in the hallway, I'm hitting these two pieces of wood together, and this guy comes out of it, and he's decided he's going to practice evacuation. And he's leaving his cubicle, and he starts coming right at me. I was between where his desk was and where the exit was. And I said, well, what are you doing? I'm the bad guy. He goes, but that's my exit. And that was a good teaching point because you saw his shoulders kind of dropped, and he realized, you know, no, it's not a good idea. So then we kind of thought through, well, what would be a better option? Because most floor plans double back on themselves. He's like, well, I could have gone this way or that. But I was, I was only, he'd made up his mind what he was going to do. This type of training looks simple, but it's not easy. There's a lot, there's many, many ways to do it wrong. Um, for example, one, uh, there's a lawsuit going on right now from a place out west. They decided at a retirement community to do a surprise active shooter drill. Not surprisingly, people were traumatized, people were scared, um, and lawsuits arose from it. We saw this also happen last year at a school in Florida to where let's do a, with realistic weapons, shooting blanks, do a surprise active shooter drill. We never, ever, ever do surprise active shooter drills. It doesn't matter that people know what's going on. What is important is they get the stimulus, they get to practice their response, and they succeed at it. 
If there's any one thread connecting Brock and Paul from their past to their present that they credit for keeping them out of a jam, it's that four-count breath or tactical breathing, something Brock isolates in his memory of the 1996 Olympic Park bombing in Atlanta. I was the uh, first engine in for the Centennial Olympic Park bombing. Uh, We were two blocks away on a medical call. When the radio rang out, uh, we have a bomb in the park with several bodies down. I turned the fire engine around, drove to the bottom of the hill, turned into and drove up into the park. Um, As we were pulling in, things were still settling from the explosion. We were there in about 40 seconds after the explosion. From that, I remember specifically looking through the chaos. I remember the, the lieutenant I was driving. I remember the lieutenant looking at me. We got out. We came around to the front of our truck and just visually assessed what was out there. We looked at each other, and I told him, I said, Lieutenant, we've done this before. It's just been one at a time. There is a bunch of them. Let's go through one at a time. And we actually did our tactical breathing. A lot of things that happened over my career, but... On a regular basis, we ever get a SWAT call out, you know, you know, on virtually all of them. The person you should be talking to the negotiator saying, yeah, if they come in, I'm going to shoot them. I'm going to do this. I'm going to kill everybody. Um, you know, I'm married. I've got a family. I want to go home. It's stressful at times. So, but that that's the common call. So as we're going to the call, um, you know, people will be joking around, still trying to keep things light. But as, as we get close to the call, as we, as we get there and as we start moving to the house, all the joking will always stop, will stop. And, and what starts at that point? Everyone kind of gets in their own head, but what do you hear? You hear that four-count breathing pretty much from everyone, from all, all 20 guys we have. Let's take another jar off the shelf of fears. Any good boogeyman story is just a stand-in for the terrible knowledge that life is fleeting. We will all die. But the fictional version of the boogeyman allows us to die over and over again and resurrect ourselves each time. After all, he's stuffed inside the pages of a story far, far away from us. But as we get older, we begin to understand that he's escaped. He could be anywhere. Once, I was walking down a deserted street late at night when a man appeared. How do you catch a unique rabbit? He asked, assessing me as he took a drag off of his cigarette. Unique up on it. Whenever I step out into the dark, alone, that punchline comes swinging back, and I think of the split second between prey and predator, the boogeyman and the dark. We'll look into this primal fear, the dark, but first we talk to some unique rabbits from How Stuff Works to get their thoughts on fear and survival. The rabbits in question, senior editor Allison Loudermilk, writer and podcast host Joe McCormick, and editor and podcast host Holly Fry. We need the potato gun. 
Active and armed at all times. I wanted to know what was lurking in the jars of the fears of my coworkers. We need to pick who is strongest in the office that could use you like a javelin. So I asked them to share the scary stuff that they had pushed way, way back on the shelf. I think exactly the reason it's uncomfortable is the reason it's interesting. <laughs> like, there's something, like, strangely uncomfortable about talking about this. Let's hear from Joe, who has given this topic a lot of thought. And by the way, he wants you to know that you should do your very own research on how to survive his worst-case scenario. The following is just what he has built up over the years. I think what anybody would agree is the most terrifying scenario, going off a bridge or, you know, over a riverbank in your car and then sinking slowly in and then drowning in your car on a bad traffic day, you know, like you were already upset. But if it happened on a good traffic day, you'd just be calm as a Hindu cow and just sink to your death happily. (laughs) (laughs) What you have to do if you're in a sinking car is immediately roll the windows down. The problem is going to be as the car sinks, the pressure uh, pushing down on the on the doors from the outside of the car, the water pressure is going to prevent you from popping the doors open because the car is going to sink faster than the interior of the cabin fills up. So the pressure on the outside is greater than the pressure on the inside. So you're going to be trying to open the doors and they're just too heavy. You, you can't get them open. But if you can roll the windows down, then you can just pop out through those. Joe's not alone in this fear. Turns out that Holly has kept the same sort of fear on her own shelf. You have accidentally stumbled on one of the reasons why I uh, am a pain in the tuchus when it comes to buying a car because I'm the one person on the lot that doesn't want power windows or power locks. Right. You I have still that have manual action. windows for the one. That's one of the reasons. For me, my anxiety comes from dwelling on a home invasion, and that's Allison's fear too. But if you look inside the jar on her shelf, her home invasion is perpetrated by the undead. If society went haywire for whatever reason, um, you know, I've, yeah, sure. I've imagined just living in the basement, like which room, which part of the basement would be like the bedroom, which part would be like the study and like where we do like homeschooling and, you know, have our meals. <laughs> I've totally planned it out. <laughs> I like that she, her kids are still going to be educated. Yeah. I mean, I think about it all the time. Uh, you know, my partner travels a lot and I'm home with the kids and I think about, I mean, our house is kind of unusual. Um, we have a ton of glass, which is really not good for a zombie attack because we will totally be, you know, seen. That's an interesting point that you bring up zombies because I think I've noticed throughout the years that a lot of people use kind of fake funny zombie scenarios to work out their actual anxieties about emergencies and societies and breakdown of law and order and society. People are – it's just the general placeholder, the fictional fantastical placeholder for what happens if everything goes wrong. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Totally. What's interesting to me about this conversation is that it's all theory. Holly's actually had to deal with a moment where things began to feel very real and very scary, very fast. Have you ever been in an interesting or memorable emergency scenario? And what did you do? Did you did you panic or did you did, did you have uh, your wits about you? What happened? I had a very strange one that seemed very scary and turned out to be someone being a jerk, which is that many, many moons ago, I used to manage a hair salon that was inside of a um, 
a department store and we would have outpost days where you would actually go and set up like a table out in the store and sell product there. And it was many moons ago. So it was not the day of like being able to process square payments on a smartphone. Like it was all cash in hand. And uh, if people wanted to charge, we would have to send them directly to the salon. And at one point I was standing there doing this, blah, 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 talking to people about product. And I feel something in my back and a guy say, don't scream, just walk with me. And I said, all right. And I did, and we got about 20 feet, and then he started laughing and said, I'm just messing with you. And after I wanted to take my shoe off and shove it down his throat, I gave him a very stern and unkind lecture with a lot of swear words about being a poor citizen. That is not wow. okay. But I was shaking in my boots and darn near urinating myself because I really didn't know it was going to happen. And you can't see what's behind you, and it was a person much larger than me. So it was just, but then I was like, you're so sick. Who does that for fun? That is messed. There is a strange uh, feeling of being afraid that you would be a coward. Do you ever have that feeling? Oh, yeah. Like, like I, I would hope that I would be, that I would be courageous and selfless in a, in a dangerous situation, but it's hard to know what you would do, you know? So I think courageous is different than smart, though, right? Sometimes. It can be. I mean, it can be. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, like you were talking about, is that, like, you don't, like, you sort of go on autopilot. And uh, I guess what I fear is that what if my going on autopilot r- reveals some side of me that I wouldn't be proud of? I-, I would hope that's not what would happen, but I guess you can't really know what happens when you go on autopilot. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think we all want to think of our best selves coming out, you know, being courageous. And then I picture myself just running for that side door and being like, adios, muchachos, come on with me if you can. But otherwise, I'm out. I don't know. I think about who I would reach for first. You know, say like my air, like an airplane was going down, you know, and my kids were not sitting next to me. Like, okay, I'd, you know, go for my kids first and then see who else is in trouble or get them off the plane and then come back in. Like, how would, I, how would that work out? But, yeah, I would like to think that I would do those kinds of things. But who knows? I mean, really, who knows? It's a strange kind of thing about how fear has this double power over us. It has the power to, to you know, of course, frighten us, to make us cower, to change our behavior, but also the power to make us ask all these questions about ourselves and, like, question who we are. And not only who we are, but how much of who we are is determined by the glow contained within those jars of fears. What happens when we take them off the shelf and we unscrew the lids. Is it like Pandora's box? Do they bombard us or do they float off into the ether never to be worried over again? And can we really ever know how much fear defines us? And now, transcribe tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Not much has changed between now and that bit of audio from yesteryear. The subject, the frightened city, remains front and center in the American psyche. And Dr. Edward Day of Chapman University can tell us why. But first, let's find out what's inside the jar on his shelf. I am absolutely petrified of height. <laughs> Put me on one of those swinging footbridges and I get vertigo immediately. And there's no, there's no rationale behind that. 
I'm Ed Day. I'm chair of the Department of Sociology at Chapman University and director of the Earl Babby Research Center, which is the uh, home for the Chapman Survey of American Fears. Chapman University recently released the second wave of its survey, comparing results from Wave 1 in 2014. Let's find out what ranked as the number one fear on Americans' minds in 2014. Yeah, the number one fear we had in this survey was walking alone at night. It just gets at people's fear of uh, this idea that the country's going to hell in a handbasket and then the crime is out of control and that you may not even be safe in your own neighborhood. Becoming the victim of identity theft, safety on the Internet, being the victim of a mass or random shooting, public speaking. These are all ranked on the top five fears of Americans, and it's easy to see why. Even the public speaking one can be terrifying, right? So were there any outliers that Dr. Day didn't expect to see? I was a little surprised that 9% said they were afraid of zombies. What? <laughs> um, uh, you know, just the pop culture seems to affect people's fear whether things are real or not. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me was that more than half of the people said they wouldn't stop to help somebody whose car had broken down. Um, you know, when I, when I was a kid, that was just something you did. And, and now we're so suspicious of each other, it's something that the people will simply refuse to do. And I just, you know, it shows a sort of lack of trust and faith in each other as people. <laughs> Some call this media-driven angst mean world syndrome, something George Gerbner and his colleagues began studying in the 1960s when they noticed that people's attitudes about their community reflected the kinds of media they consumed. For instance, the more police dramas and news people watched, well, the greater they perceived the threat of something violent happening to them. One of the things we would hope would come out of this survey is, is, is to address that sort of mean world uh, approach or view of the world and, and, and get off of it. You know, whenever we talk about the fear of crime or the fear of walking alone, we try to try to emphasize to folks that crime rates have gone down dramatically since, you know, over the last 20 years. Really, since 93, they've been dropping like a rock. Both violent and property crime are down 50 percent. And yet two-thirds of the country thinks crime is going up, you know. I mean, and, and it's odd because it's, it's such a simple thing to find out. And it, anyone listening to the podcast could could look this up on their phone before I finish talking the sentence and see uh, how far crime has gone down. And at this point, it's not crime so much that is affecting people's quality of life. It's the fear of crime. And we hope by talking about fear more openly, people can see, you know, which fears are maybe rational and which ones aren't. And maybe we can address that in a more logical, educated way. Chapman University's survey is dizzying in its ability to drill down into fine detail, including who's most likely to be fearful. A low education. You know, having only a high school diploma or a GED or less was, was a very consistent predictor of fears and worries and concerns, uh, especially on personal safety, uh, on personal future, which is a, a pretty reasonable fear or concern in that group. They tend to be more afraid of, of being stalked or having their identity stolen, of, vic of criminal victimization. They reported higher levels of the phobias, you know, of, of fear of heights, fear of clowns, uh, uh, fear of blood. Uh, they had a higher level of fear of the government, especially on things like uh, gun control and Obamacare. Uh, TV watching was a very big factor, and, and especially on, uh, on crime. What was interesting is that it, it didn't matter whether you watched uh, true crime TV or fictional crime TV. You know, both have a big effect on your, on your fear of uh, personal victimization. People who watch a lot of talk TV 
also had higher fears. So the television influence was big. Uh, females are, are more afraid of, of personal safety and criminal victimization and had higher levels, reported higher levels of uh, uh, fears of the phobia type things, you know, the clowns in blood. And Republicans were more worried about government. Democrats were more worried about personal safety and the environment and, and man-made disasters. Christians were more worried about the government and man-made disasters. And being retired was related uh, uh, to personal safety and fears about one's future. The survey covers a lot of ground, but if there's one thing that Dr. Day wants us to take away from it, it's this. We would like people to get back to a more rational look at their life. Uh, we would like people to say, yes, I've been afraid of crime, maybe because I'm watching TV, not because I'm, I'm actually uh, uh, in, in, in serious danger of a violent victimization. And we'd like people to get outside again, you know, sit on your front porch instead of uh, locking yourself inside and barring the windows. Uh, share with your neighbors. You know, avoid this self-fulfilling prophecy of everyone's afraid of the park at night, so that leaves the park at night to the bad guys, you know. Go take it back. There's, there's less to be afraid of than you think. So have our deepest, darkest thoughts shifted from last year to this year? And does the cultural echo chamber continue to feed our collective anxiety? To find out about phase two of the survey, head over to now.howstuffworks.com. There you'll find the article, American Horror Story, What Do Americans Fear Most? For now, though, it's time to gather up our concerns, anxiety, and angst, and put them back on the shelf. Even the jar that contains our biggest fear death, the knowledge of which makes living that much more beautiful and strange. In the meantime, Joe has a question for you. Here's one. What would you do if we lost power, like electricity, and just didn't get it back? They keep telling us, oh, it'll be another day or two and maybe say it's been a week and you still don't have power. Tell us what you do or perhaps what you have done. Email us your experience, your plans, or hey, write a fictional story about it and send it to us at the stuff of life at howstuffworks.com. The Stuff of Life is co-produced by Noel Brown and me, Julie Douglas. Original music and sound design is by Noel Brown. Thank you to Brock Ryan and Paul Merritt of Life Safety Solutions for sharing what you do. Thanks to Dr. Edward Day for covering some of the finer points of the Chapman University Survey of American Fears. And thanks to our How Stuff Works colleagues, Allison Loudermilk, Joe McCormick, and Holly Fry, not to mention head of production, Jerry Rowland.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.